You're listening to another episode of Tech Writer Voices, a podcast that is dedicated to exploring all the latest trends and practices and best ways of working in the field of technical communication. If you're new to the show, my name is Tom Johnson. I'm a technical writer based in Salt Lake City, Utah. I used to live in Florida, but I recently moved to Utah about six months ago. I'm a member of the Intermountain STC chapter, and I recently volunteered to be my chapter's virtual meeting facilitator. So if you have any tips on virtual meetings, let me know. Actually, I was going to do this podcast as a virtual meeting, but I couldn't quite figure out a good conferencing service that had audio I liked. I tried TalkShoe and DimDim, but they both kind of sounded pretty poor and kind of scratchy and wasn't very impressed with them. So I decided to just fall back on what I'm accustomed to doing and do a regular podcast. Actually, in the future, though, we're going to do some virtual meetings where I'll let you know who the guest is going to be, what the topic is, and you can listen in and ask questions at the end if you're if you're into that kind of thing. And before we get into the podcast, and before I tell you more about uh, Teresa and, and the topic, I just want to mention our sponsors. We have two main sponsors for the podcast, Madcap Software. They just released four new products or announced that a few products are in beta and one is officially released or is officially in beta. I'm not even sure. Blaze uh, allows you to produce and manage large documentation sets using native XML, CSS, and native Unicode without sacrificing ease of use. It's essentially the print component, uh, print alternative to Flare, um, or for print deliverables. They released Press, which allows you to easily create high-end, media-rich print documents. Xedit and Team Server, so you can read about those at madcapsoftware.com. Adobe has released, and you know, well, they recently released the Adobe Air platform, which allows you for RoboHelp, allows you to compact all your files into one, and allows comments, has a cool looking skin. I'm not really that familiar with the Air platform. I did download an, a different application, not Adobe related, but which uses the Air platform called Twirl, T-W-H-I-R, IRL for Twitter, and it's a pretty cool sort of thing. It kind of floats on your desktop, but hooks into data from the internet at the same time. And also, I just wanted to mention Adobe Connect. Maybe a lot of people haven't haven't discovered it, but it's a great conferencing solution that allows you to put up to 15 people on your call for unlimited calls per month for only $39 a month. Actually, I was exploring that in hopes of using it, using it as a virtual meeting, but I'll have to play around with that a little more. All right, back to the topic at hand. I discovered Teresa's blog and was following it, and one day I saw a really interesting-looking title in, in one of her posts about a presentation she was preparing called Superwoman, Wonder Woman, Underdog, and Leprechaun with Flair. A case study in breaking down silos, and it looked like an interesting, interesting topic. A giant, I, I call it a Godzilla type topic, where you have thousands of topics that you have to manage. And what's also interesting about Teresa is that she's not just a technical writer; she's actually moved into usability. So she approaches the project not from a perspective of, oh, I have to document all these features, but how can I make it? Uh, usable? How can I make the help more friendly and more findable 
and make it more manageable for people who are trying to get the information they need. So this podcast has two parts, actually, because I wanted to explore both this presentation that she gave as well as her her move into usability. So this is part one of a two-part series. So let's go to the interview. So you're in Vancouver, right? That's right. And I take it you've decided to stay stay at work extra long so you could do this interview today, right? Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. I've got my own office, and I don't mind staying here. There's nobody else here anyway, so I can be as loud as I want. Oh, that's good. So <laughs> now I, I was curious. I was trying to read your, your bio, and I couldn't tell if you're Canadian or if you moved to Canada and decided to permanently live there. Yeah, I'm an American. I'm living in Canada. I moved here um, almost uh, eight years ago, and I uh, I wasn't going to stay here permanently, but then I met a guy, and that kind of changed my plans, and I don't really have anywhere else to go. So now I'm a permanent resident, which in the U.S., it's a green card. So, yeah. Well, great. Yeah. yeah. I was up at Dock Train last year, and it's a really beautiful area. Yeah. I love it. I used to live in Sacramento, and I didn't like Sacramento. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the things you were recently doing up there is presenting at the Content Convergence and Integration Conference on, uh, let me read your talk title, Superwoman, Wonder Woman, Underdog, and Leprechaun with Flair, a case study in breaking down silos. How, right. how, how was that conference? Um, it was pretty good. I was only able to attend part of it, but um, from what I heard and everybody else's reviews, they quite liked it. Um, they thought the content was really good and the networking was good. Um, the cocktail reception was a lot of fun, So, and uh, the weather wasn't too bad. So, yeah, I think it turned out well for the Strategy A group. Now, I was also reading in your bio, and it says that... that uh, well, you're a usability consultant. You you initially started out as a technical writer, but then you transitioned to become a full-time usability consultant instead. Um, so now this project, though, that you, you were talking about in your presentation, it included aspects of both technical writing and usability? Yeah, so what I like to do, even though uh, in general, I guess to people who don't know what I do, is I just say I, I do usability, but um, to people in the know, I like to do information architecture and content management, and I find that um, that's more on the content-heavy websites and um, technical documentation um, products. So a lot of times, I even though uh, I'm out of mostly out of technical writing, I still do a lot of work in technical writing. Um, in, in content management and technical communication content management, but I don't necessarily do documenting new features or readme's or um, the writing of it. I leave that to somebody else. So can you tell me just a little bit about this project, like the scope of it? Uh, I was reading in your, your, your PowerPoint that it had 2,000 topics, 400 were duplicates. There was another part of it that had 2,500 topics and 600 duplicates. This seems like one of the largest projects that, that probably one encounters in a long time. Am I right? Yes. Um, for We were using RoboHelp to maintain these separate projects. So one of the projects was called ProLiance, 
and the other was called Prologue, and they're made by a company called Meridian Systems. They have an R&D office here in Vancouver, and their main office is in Sacramento. Um, so they were using RoboHelp, uh, and they had started using RoboHelp, I guess, in 1999 or 98, and the project grew and grew and grew, and RoboHelp kind of just stayed the same. So I guess they were starting to encounter um, latency problems with RoboHelp, where they were trying to use it with SourceSafe, trying to use it with RoboSource, um, and then they were having like JavaScript. They had some custom JavaScript stuff that wasn't working anymore, and they had sent it to RoboHelp tech support, and the tech support guy said, you know, this is just a really big project for RoboHelp, and it's not used to this kind of thing. Um, but I find that it's hard to find any software for technical documentation that actually supports such a large project. Um, so that was the problem is that they are really big and you don't see that a lot. So technical documentation software isn't really made for these kinds of projects. But I think it should be. I think uh, software is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and that the software needs, uh, the technical documentation software needs to accommodate those kinds of projects. In your presentation, you also hinted that it wasn't just a problem of too many topics, but also that users couldn't find things. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so um, they had, uh, they have, so they had, you know, their, say for ProLiance, they had 2,500, or yeah, 2,500 help topics about, and 25% of it was duplicated. Then not only did they have their RoboHelp project, they had um, maybe like 10 white papers in Word and 10 white pa- um, technical bulletins. They also have knowledge base items that are maintained in a separate database by tech support. They have readme's, install guides, upgrade guides, um, uh, technical alerts, and maybe a couple other things. So they had all these different, they maintained it in RoboHelp, in front page, in Word, in this special database. Um, and oh, they also had a, a developer's library like the MSDN, and they maintain that in Notepad. Even though this uh, this library probably had about a hundred topics, they maintained it everything in Notepad, including the table of contents. So it's outside of RoboHelp, and the technical documentation team didn't really manage it. Um, so when they have this support website, which they call the support link. And you need to be a customer to log in to that support link. And then you see everything for Prologue and ProLiance. So if you're a ProLiance customer, you would see everything for ProLiance, but also everything for Prologue. So it was all mixed together. It was also really browse-heavy that if you logged on, you would see all the types of documentation you could get, like help systems, technical bulletins, white papers. Um, but you would have to browse into each one of those areas to see if the topic you were looking for was in there. So if you were browsing through the help system, they had it posted as a PDF, and that PDF is, say, a 1,000 pages, so you can't really browse through it. Um, you could browse through the knowledge base items, and the search was really it was down in the bottom. So if you have a whole page full of knowledge base browsing um, then and the search is down at the bottom, then you're not going to see it. So people, they weren't finding information, and sometimes because content was duplicated, some of it was out of date, 
and they couldn't find the real the the source that was correct either. So that was um, starting to weigh down on the support team for sure. So if you have this giant mass of information and it's just kind of scattered in so many different places, what's the approach? What kind of strategy did you use to try to make this information more accessible and more usable to the people who are using it? Um, well, for this information, I'd say that the main um, the main audience, the main user was the support team because um, they had done a survey and the support had done a survey and a lot of customers either emailed or called in and they had made the comment that I can't find what I'm looking for on the website, so I don't even bother. I just call you or email you. So a lot of times the, um, the support team had to find the information in the help. When we were thinking about, since there was the performance problems with RoboHelp and it just wasn't satisfactory anymore, we did want to move to something new that was the R in R&D, that was their initiative, and um, before we purchased any software, came up with a business case to represent or to present to the president of R&D. We asked the support team if they needed anything because they were the number one consumers of the documentation, and they said that they were trying to redo their support link. They didn't know what they were going to do, though, because they didn't know how to put together all of the information. And, of course, me being the information architect and the technical writer background, I said, oh, well, we can we can help you because if you have all this information, like the knowledge base items, and we have all the other information, and we want to move to something new, why don't we make just one web help system? Um, so even though you know you publish to multiple outputs, for the support link, you can just have one big, huge help file with everything in it for one product. So for ProLiance, you log on, you get the ProLiance help system, um, and and then you can search. Like you could search on everything. It's not the greatest search, but you can search. You can browse too, but you can search, and everything's in there. And it's only in there once, and then you can reuse it. So they were really excited about that. Now, when you implemented this search, did you, I think I was reading that you used feedback server as well. So did you configure synonyms for search and things like that, or did you just use normal search? Um, we, so the search that's in Flare, if you just use it, it's a, what do they call it, an, a, an or search. So if you put in a, a string of three words, then it searches um, on all of those, any of those words, but not all of them. So you could put in cultures and get 500 entries. Uh, so to narrow it down, Flare has what they call search filters. And yes, you need to use um, not exactly synonyms, but it's what Flare calls concept keywords. So every topic that has to do with, say, if it's called custom cultures, you associate that keyword with each of the topics that is about custom cultures, and then you create um, your search filter and you link it to custom cultures. So say the search filter is localization. You could link it with uh, custom cultures, translation, um, I don't know, maybe custom installations in international countries. Um, and then when the person does want to search on uh, cultures, then they can, instead of just giving 500 results, then they can choose the search filter for 
localization or uh, is that what I said? Yeah, localization. And then they would get maybe 30 topics instead of 500. So at least it helps them narrow it down that way. So that was, um, that was using the concept keywords, but in feedback server, that's where you would get the synonyms. So if somebody, say in the construction industry, there a lot of, there's a lot of really big construction companies and they do business all over the world. Um, and if they use different terminology for corporate purposes, then, uh, a user, say if you have a term like work order, um, somebody else might call that a work package. And in in Flare, you can you can associate work order and work work package as the same thing. And then for and when feedback server comes into play is that when people actually are on the website and they are searching it, you can see what they're searching on and what results they come up with and, and if they actually find anything that they were looking for. So you can know what they're searching on. And then you can link that up. So if you have, I have work order and work package, but I might also have like work bill or purchase order or something like that. So you can make those, so you can expand your synonyms from feedback. Was one of the reasons you decided to use the feedback component for the search? I know that the feedback allows users to also make comments and interact, but was the search and the analytics to track the search keywords the main reason? Um, it was it was both the searching and the comments area um, for the for getting to know users and what they needed to do with the product. They didn't really have any way to go directly to users and ask them what their nomenclature or what their terminology was. Um, and a lot of clients may not give that out either. It might be something private. So with feedback, at least you can help people when they do search on a term and they don't get anything, don't get any results. The next time that you update the health system and, and use feedback, you can take that word and put it in as a synonym. But the other thing was that um, for, for Prologue, they have a really big user base and a very active user community. And maybe eight years ago, the users wanted Meridian to start, from what I understand, users wanted Meridian to start a user group forum, and I guess Meridian didn't, so the users started one themselves, and it's still going on today, and it's quite active. So I suggested that as a way to for Meridian to appear as to be engaging their users, that the comments area might help create a bit of a community in the help system because people can make comments on the help topics and then other people can see those comments and respond or the uh, documentation staff can respond or R&D or tech support can respond. So we're hoping, you know, it was a it was kind of a long shot maybe, but I, I think that in theory it was a, a good idea and they agreed, the support staff agreed. But they haven't implemented it or rolled it out yet, so I don't know how uh, well adopted that will be. I was just about to ask what the results were because I I know that users often aren't very um, forthcoming in providing comments, but if they already have a forum where they're exchanging information, I can see how that same culture could carry over. Well, I want to go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think that with the the prologue user base, um, 
since they are used to talking things up, they might do that. Um, and and they actually had, after I left, they had a discussion of should we take anonymous comments or should, I guess, uh, feedback has some required fields and they require maybe six to eight fields. Like the user, every time you put in a comment, you have to fill in all six fields. So they thought that that was too much of a barrier for somebody to make comments. So there was this going back and forth and and I think that it's a professional website and people should put in, should identify themselves with a comment, but maybe only their name and email address. So they kind of, I guess feedback isn't totally there yet as far as the product goes, but um, in the to build a community, you kind of need to identify people with comments. When you took all this information from these old RoboHelp files and Word files and you imported them into Flare, did you accept the, the styles in them or did you strip out the styles when you imported them? Um, let's see. We... We had a style sheet in RoboHelp, and we, yeah, what we did was um, imported the project with the style sheet into Flare, and then the one of the writers or the other writer on the project she adjusted the style sheet so it would fit with Flare, and. I think both um, Prolog and ProLiance use the same names in their style sheets. So then she was able to adjust one, and we applied it to both. So I think as far as the CSS went, there was no problems. They were both to standard. So it didn't really appear to be much of a problem, um, although there was some custom JavaScript to get the plus-minus drop-down list little uh, icon to work in RoboHelp, so we did have to strip out all of that JavaScript, and that was kind of a pain in the butt. Um, so I would say that anything you can clean up in RoboHelp before you import it into Flare is probably better. But there wasn't too many problems with the style sheet, no. Now, would you say that, that this project was like your largest project that you've had to tackle? I say in terms of... Uh, Doing the information architecture and um, and transferring things over and getting buy-in from people all at the same time. Yes, it was probably my biggest project yet. What would you have done differently in retrospect now that you've completed it and you finished converting and, and architecting all this stuff? Um, I'd probably say that I think that in terms of. Uh, mm, the team building that went on around it, I think that was quite good. Um, I wouldn't really change that um, because I think that all things considered, going from a department that really had no visibility to going to a department that was pretty well integrated with the support team, that was really good. I think that the things to do differently would be the with the software um, that uh, I don't know if I... If Flare was a bad choice, I don't. I don't think it was the worst choice. I don't think it was the best choice. I think that sometimes you just got to choose based on what your needs are. And one of the needs of the project was that um, the the new software needed to be easily learnable. And in terms of whether you choose Flare or Author it, um, 
Flare was perceived as to have a lower learning curve, and it was also less expensive. Um, but, you know, once you get into Flare, then you learn about all of its problems. And one of the things that really irritated me was the in RoboHelp, you have all the index entries, and you have all the see also and related topic um, references that can be in every topic. And Flare deals with them differently, and they were actually quite a mess in RoboHelp. So I didn't fix them up. I didn't realize it until I got into Flare. I didn't fix them up in RoboHelp. And if I had just deleted all of the index entries and um, related topics and see also's and redone them in Flare, um, that would have been way better. But then, as it was, I imported the RoboHelp project into Flare, and then I deleted the index entries and the see also and related topics. And that was a pain in the butt because Flare puts these things into every topic instead of having a master list and a master file. Flare puts them into every topic. So I had to open every single topic and delete all of these things. And we're talking about, you know, 2,500 topics and each topic has two or three or four index words and, and one concept keyword or one see also reference. There's actually a lot of deleting and a lot of time, and it's not really easy to automate. So that was, I'd say, for the on the software side, figure out uh, what you need to clean up, and but it's difficult when you, you just have to go for it sometimes. It's interesting to hear you say that about the index entries because one of my biggest complaints about RoboHelp has always been that it puts all the index entries in the heading, so that if you have a long topic and you suddenly generate it into a print format the index entries don't point to the right locations. But I didn't realize that if you want to edit, then the index entries in Flare, it can be a a much larger task than than perhaps in RoboHelp. I'm curious about the learning curve. So when you approached this project and you wrote up your proposal and your work estimate, had you, were you a, a, somebody who was comfortable with Flare or was this going to be like a new tool? Um, I had never used Flare before. Um, I had used RoboHelp and AuthorIt, and my figure there was somewhere in between. I also don't really know any XML or really any CSS. I do so know some HTML, and now I know some XHTML. Um, and I wasn't really too worried about the learning curve. I figured that any new software product would be different. And, you know, as a technical writer, you learn a lot of software programs. So I wasn't too worried about it. Um, but other people on the project, since... Author it was new to them, and it's very like uh, con- uh, was it content object oriented. So they didn't get like when they were using just playing around with author it, they didn't get how it was supposed to work. So Flare was uh, since it looked more like RoboHelp, they assumed that it would be easier to use, and in the end, it turns out it probably wasn't any easier to learn and use than author it would have been. Um, but yeah, I didn't know it either. And you kind of don't really learn software until you have to do something major with it. So now looking back, since you've, you've become a very much a power user with AuthorIt and Flare, which would you say is a better tool for the project that you are approaching here? Um, you know, I think that, uh, I think it's still six of one, half dozen of the other. I think, um, some of the driving factors with Flare was that it was less expensive. 
Um, and for a company that hadn't invested any money in their documentation for about three years, just making a transition and, and hiring a new writer and hiring a consultant and, and choosing a new software program and getting training for it and then hiring a junior contractor, that was a really, there was a big step. Um, so I can't say that, that Slayer was a bad choice. I mean, I think it's a good product, and I think it's got a really good future ahead of it. Definitely has some kinks to work out. On the other hand, um, if you're going to use Authorit, I think that's much better. If you're doing translation work or localization work, I think it's much better integrated. But that wasn't something that Meridian was concerned with at the time. And they also didn't have time to do a lot of the um, making things into content objects and restructuring the topics, um, you know, like taking this, in that topic, you take the paragraph and you make it into a paragraph object and taking the procedure and making it into a procedure object. They just didn't have time to do that. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think that you kind of, you can't press any software onto people. They kind of, it was um, the price and the other writer was more comfortable with Flair. She liked it more. And she was going to be using it in the long term. So, yeah, I would say that it's, you know, it's got a great future ahead of it. Author it kind of seems stale, but who knows how they'll respond to Flare and, and Rebel Help. So, yeah. I'm curious, how how did Flare handle the large number of files? Um, it was not too bad. I think it wasn't as bad as Rebel Help. Um, you know, one question I did ask when we, before we purchased it was, is uh, Flare capable of handling a really big help system? And, of course, I got the answer, oh, yes, it has no problem handling really big help systems. Um, but the problem that we had with it was um, in Flare, you can bind your project to VFS, so... Um, if you open a project in Flare and you don't have it checked out from SourceSafe, then it asks you, do you want to check this file out? So, of course, you know, we say yes. Um, but then if you want to, say, tag 100 topics with the same conditional tag and your, your Flare project is bound to VFS and then you save, so you, say you highlight your your 100 topics in the list, you change the tag, um, and Flare takes about 10 minutes to do anything. And we didn't know what was going on until we figured out that uh, Flare was actually, like, writing back something to VSS for every single file. So once we unbound the project from VSS and would try to tag the 100 topics, there was no problem. Um, so, yeah. They, they just came out with something called Team Server yesterday. So uh, they announced some, yeah, they announced like four new products yesterday. So maybe they're aware of those kind of shortcomings and have tried to address it with something different. Yeah. You've been listening to Tech Writer Voices. We're on the web, or I'm on the web, at techwritervoices.com or idratherbewriting.com. Both both URLs take you to the exact same page. idratherbewriting.com also has my blog. So if you haven't visited my blog, 
be sure to check it out. I try to post something every day. I don't always do, but if I have something interesting to say or something that I'm reflecting on, you can read it there. I think I do think that writing is my strength and audio isn't, but I enjoy both mediums. I really do like hearing voices and conversations. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash tomjohnson1492. Yes, that would be the year Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You can find out more about Teresa by visiting her blog at keypoint.ca, and that's in the show notes. Spell point with an E at the end and then CA instead of .com. And she also has a contact button there, so if you want to send her an email, let her know what you thought of the presentation of the podcast. I'm sure she would love to hear you from you. And I always love to hear comments as well. Send me an email at tom at idratherbewriting.com or, or check out the contact link on my blog. And let me know if you have any suggestions for improvements, if you want to suggest a guest or if you want to be a co-host or, or whatever. One thing I, I am going to be doing in the upcoming weeks is offering some training on WordPress and podcasting as well. So look for that. I'm still trying to formulate exactly what I'm going to do, but I am going to start offering some training on these two areas and blogging and podcasting. So if you're interested, stay tuned and send me an email, maybe letting me know if that you're interested. Now, remember this, this is part one of two parts. The second part, which I'll be posting in a few days, uh, includes Teresa talking more about usability, particularly the the way that she transitioned from technical writer into usability consultant consultant and it too is about a 20 to 25 minute podcast so stay tuned and let others know about it so we can grow the readership i love to know that you're out there listening so spread the word you're listening to tech writer voices a podcast that covers the latest trends and best practices in the field of technical communication. I'm your host, Tom Johnson. Today I'm talking with Teresa Putkey, a usability consultant based in Vancouver. And we're talking about the largest project of her career. And this is a first of a two-part podcast with Teresa. The first podcast will focus on tackling large product projects and the second will focus on usability. She is a person who's moved into usability from technical writing. Tech Writer Voices is sponsored by Madcap Software. Madcap has just released four new products into beta, including the much-anticipated Blaze. Learn more about Blaze and their other new products at madcapsoftware.com. Tech Writer Voices is also sponsored by Adobe, creators of the Technical Communication Suite, which includes Captivate. Ow! Ow! <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> All right. Uh. <laughs> Tech Writer Voices is also sponsored by Adobe, creators of the Technical Communication Suite, <laughs> which includes Captivate, RoboHelp, Acrobat, and FrameMaker. Learn <laughs> more at Adobe.com. All right, let's go to the interview. All right. 